Christ, I hope you will hear this. The Pharisees had the rules of the prohibitionists. They measured their religion based on things, which is a very convenient religion. Remember, if you didn't wash your hands before eating, you were defiled because something was going into your body that wasn't clean, in their opinion. And Jesus here is condemning it, and he's asking you to listen, to hearken to him, and to understand. And if you will hear, if you have ears to hear, if God has opened your heart to his word so that you love it, hear what Jesus would say. His disciples asked him, what do you mean by that statement? He said, do ye not perceive? Don't you understand? Whatsoever thing from without entereth into a man, it cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draft, that's the sewer, purging all meats. And he said, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man, for from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, and so on, all the way down to foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. This is the doctrine of Jesus Christ. What defiles you, what is sin, comes out of your heart. It's not what goes in. Does drunkenness condemn wine? Let's ask our question again. Does wine cause drunkenness in the light of Mark 7? Jesus would say, no, wine doesn't cause drunkenness. Jesus would say, wine cannot defile a man because wine goes into the belly. Wine ends up in the draft. Wine does not enter the heart. Je now, Jesus didn't say wine and Jesus didn't say drunkenness. Jesus gave us a list of sins that include every other sin just like them. Every sin of man is not in the thing. You know, the sin, television isn't a sinful thing. Television is a mechanical box that's sitting in most of our living rooms. But if you watch the wrong thing on it, you've abused a good mechanical device and you've sinned because of your heart. Jesus said drunkenness comes out of man. Jesus said drunkenness is in the heart. Jesus said the heart defiles a man. Jesus taught us godly understanding. God said your ways are not my ways. And we're going to take a break here, right here at page 30. But this last point that we're leaving is very important. The doctrine of Jesus Christ is not a doctrine that looks at a thing and makes the thing sin and the thing evil and the thing the source of defiling. Jesus looks at the human heart. Wine is a good creation. The Bible has said that. We've seen it. It's the human heart that says, I want to drink more than I need to. I want to get drunk anyway. And doesn't use it in moderation. It's that choice of the human heart to drink more than they ought to that makes it sin. Just like the abuse of food. Food is good. It's the man that does not exercise temperance and moderation and restrict his eating. He ends up in the sin of gluttony and right down through those other sins to the result of the human heart, not the result of the thing itself. There'll be a five to four main points that we've covered so far this evening. The main points are God condemns drunkenness, God commends wine, wine is wine in the Bible, and Jesus' doctrine is that what goes into a man does not defile him, but all sin comes out of the human heart. That's the four points that we've covered.
so far. Drunkenness does not condemn wine. If you do that, you're missing the, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, and you're not being fair with wine, and you're not being consistent with yourself, because if you applied that same logic to every other sin, you'd throw a lot of other objects out of your life, because they could be a temptation to falling in that particular area. Let's now look at some of the verses that are used to condemn any use of wine. The references that I'm going to use, I'm going to quickly go through 10 examples here of arguments that are used against wine. They are contained in a little pamphlet that is in your front pocket entitled 75 Bible Reasons or Bible References on Drinking. That pamphlet is an example of the lengths that men will go to to try to use the Bible to condemn wine. I am going to pick out 10 of them. The well, I just hope they're example ones and the hardest ones he has and show how easy they are to reconcile with what we've covered so far. But if you want to look at the rest of his arguments, you'll find them on that pamphlet. And I've, there's a blue outline in that pocket also that will help you look through his arguments and, and use the Bible honestly. That pamphlet is the one that I was trained on, and that is the pamphlet that is still put out by Signal Press out of Illinois that's a uh, temperance printing house. Remember the word temperance, the way they use it means abstinence. What about Leviticus 10.9? In Leviticus 10.9... They like to pull out those words and use them for sermon and pamphlet material. Do not drink wine nor strong drink. If you look in that pamphlet and look down it far enough to find Leviticus, you'll find it used about that way. Let's, let's see what it actually says, just for the sake of an example. An express command not to drink. Leviticus 10.9. Looking at the verse... We notice that, do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou, that's Aaron, nor thy sons, that's the priest, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. This verse is for Aaron and his sons. This verse is when they're in the tabernacle only. If you look up Ezekiel 44, it'll teach, teach this very same thing. The Bible's very clear. Priests were not to drink when they went into the tabernacle. The priests otherwise drank the best wine because the best wine was to be tithed by the other 12 tribes to the tribe of Levi. You can see that in these two passages that the priests at other times drank the best wine. You know, priests were also prohibited from wearing wool clothing. You don't hear too many people jumping on that bandwagon. Priests couldn't marry a widow. You won't find many jumping on that one either. And if you want to know that those are rules for priests, you can look it up in Ezekiel 44, verses 17 and 22. There's a verse that's used. Do not drink wine nor strong drink. A very simple reading of it will point out that it's only for Aaron and his sons and only when they were serving in the tabernacle of the congregation. Let's go to another one, Numbers chapter 6. When either a man or a woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. Some will reason that if a Nazarite was to stay away from wine and strong drink, it must mean 
that avoiding wine and strong drink will help you have a closer walk with God. This, the abstinence of number 6-3, was only for the Nazarites. It was only for a short time, except in a couple of cases where we had lifetime Nazarites. Can you think of the two that are in the Bible? Samson and John the Baptist. The vow proves everyone else using wine. You know, if the Nazarite's making a vow to the Lord, he's not going to drink. That means everyone else is, or it wouldn't be much of a vow. We, you know, we ought to read the Bible carefully and understand what God is telling us there. The vow also prohibits grapes and raisins. The Nazarite couldn't eat anything from the vine to the husk of grapes. They were to completely avoid the grapevine. The vow also prohibits haircuts and funerals. And if you read Numbers 6.20, you'll find out that the Nazarite did drink after the vow and is stated plainly. As soon as the vow is finished, the Nazarite may drink. Numbers 6 and verse 20. Even our Lord did not make such a vow. John the Baptist didn't drink, but Jesus did. And that's Luke 7.33, where he was accused by the Pharisees of being a wine-bibber. The law of the Nazarite doesn't have anything to do with us now. And if you're to be consistent with it, you'd have to give up raisins and haircuts and funerals and the rest of the things that the Nazarite gave up. And even the Nazarite, as soon as his period of his vow was finished, would drink. Deuteronomy 29. Ye have not eaten bread, neither have ye drunk wine nor strong drink, that ye might know that I am the Lord your God. Some will argue that this verse teaches that if you want to have a close relationship with God, you can't drink wine or strong drink. Is that what it's teaching? Does, that, does, it, does abstinence really promote communion with God by this text? This verse is given by Moses late in the book of Deuteronomy before he died about God's dealings with them during the 40 years in the wilderness. Israel only abstained while in the wilderness, while they were wandering around as nomads with no permanent dwelling place. God gave them manna and water out of a rock. And that's because God wanted to give them a supernatural proof that he was their God. Their shoes didn't wear out. They didn't drink wine or strong drink. They didn't even eat bread. Shall we also abstain from bread? Because God provided them manna, God provided them water, and God wouldn't let their shoes wear out. When they got to Canaan, God told them, as soon as you get to Canaan, you're going to find cities that are already built for you, wells that are already dug, and vineyards that are already planted you'll have plenty of wine, water, and cities to dwell in. You know, if we're to be consistent with this passage, maybe it's bread that defiles a man and keeps us from a close walk with God. When we read Scripture, we ought to be honest with what those verses teach. It's set up here, ye have not eaten bread. The whole verse is not telling anyone to abstain from wine or strong drink. It's saying, you have by the nature of your circumstances for the last 40 years, so that God could show that he was your Lord. God did not give them normal sustenance here. They had to rely supernaturally on him every morning for manna and for water out of a rock or some other source. What about Proverbs 21? Here's the verse that says, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. If a person with cockiness, haughtiness, drinks himself drunk 
abuses wine and thinks that he has a control over it, and it's not going to affect him a whole lot like me when I said that ether's not going to touch me. If he has an attitude like that, he is a deceived man, and he's not wise. When we look at a verse like Proverbs 20 and verse 1, it's important to remember that Proverbs are dark sayings needing interpretation. I didn't make that up. Solomon tells you that when he starts the book of Proverbs. The disciples tell you that in John 16, 29, when they told Jesus, thank you for not using Proverbs. Now you're speaking plainly. John 16, 29. Proverbs are short, easily remembered, easily stated things that, that need some explanation. You know, we use little figures of speech like it's raining cats and dogs, um, or statements like that that need a little bit of explanation. And Proverbs are that way. Just this week, we were the family was reading in Proverbs chapter 3, I believe it is, where it said that wisdom was health to your navel. And I was trying to explain to the children that, you know, getting wisdom is not really going to help your belly button. <laughs> but navel is put for your inner being. It's, it's part of you to represent all of your inward parts. Wisdom will serve you well, but, the, but pro, a proverb would put it, it's health to your navel. You won't forget that statement. That's why it's a proverb. Now, wine itself does not mock. I, I've never been in a store like a Winn-Dixie or someplace and had the stuff mocking me off the shelf. Wine itself does not mock. We, can, we know that. Strong drink itself doesn't rage. You've never seen bottles of whiskey fighting each other. So when it says wine is a mocker, what is that? What Solomon, what are you saying? What's the word of God saying? We have here what's called a figure of speech in English called metonymy, where something that is related to a thing is put for it. For instance, if I were to say to you in an automobile, step on the gas, would you stop the car, siphon some out of your tank, and step on it? Or would you step on the accelerator that controls the gas? Don't, don't we use that expression? Step on the gas. We mean step on the accelerator that controls the gas. We use the expression, you really used your head on that one. Now, can you imagine someone with a book going up, trying, they're not moving pages with their head, we're saying you really used your brain on that one, but we say it, you really used your head, meaning the place where your brain is contained. It's metonymy. We do it all the time. We might hear a statement like the White House said today, well, the White House has never spoken, but someone representing the White House might have. We use metonymy all the time, and if we, and I say we, had paid attention in high school English, we'd probably remember this without having to study it all over again 20 years later. This is metonymy of effect. Wine is a mocker. Abuse of wine will lead to mocking behavior. Abuse of strong drink will cause rage. Wine itself doesn't mock. Strong drink doesn't mock. It's the abuse of those things that mocks. Here's some Bible examples of metonymy if you're having difficulty and you didn't buy Step on the Gas. That is metonymy. You've never stepped in the gas in your, probably in your life. Does the rod give wisdom? You know, Proverbs 29, 15 says the rod gives wisdom. 
Well, if you have a rod in your house, it's not going to give wisdom to anyone. It's the proper use of a rod on a disobedient child that gives wisdom. But it says the rod gives wisdom. James 3, 6 says the tongue is a fire. Anybody got a fire in their mouth? The tongue isn't a fire directly. It's the abuse of the tongue, the misuse of the tongue that's a fire. In the damage it can cause by burning up things, burning up other people, hurting other people. It's a dangerous thing that's in our mouths. The expression in the Bible is the tongue is a fire. Does that communicate the point very quickly and very strongly? Metonymy is very effective. Step on the gas. Would you please step on the accelerator that opens the float in the carburetor that will increase the vacuum and draw more gasoline into the engine? We don't say that. We say step on the gas. We say the tongue is a fire. And when the Bible says that, it's a, it's a strong statement about the abuse of the tongue. I remember over here Abraham said to the rich man, remember the rich man was worried about his brothers. Abraham said they have Moses. Let them hear him. Well, now the rich man's brothers didn't have Moses. What they have? They had some books written by Moses. Wine only mocks the drunk. Only a man who is drunk that does foolish things and then later has to regret it is the man who's been mocked by wine. When a man who's normally known for a sober approach to life gets drunk, drinks wine to an excess and goes out and behaves foolishly and then later has to face people who saw him in that condition, wine has mocked him. Strong drink brings rage to the drunk. It's a man who lost his temper under the re reduced inhibitions and loss of judgment by drinking too much. Moderate drinking doesn't fit here at all. Drinking is only folly to those deceived by it. And a wise man will understand that wine can be a mocker, strong drink can be raging, just like our tongue ought to be guarded very carefully. A good thing in itself, but the abuse of it hurts people. So it's got to be guarded. And this needs to be guarded also. This is a proverb, a short statement that you, most of you already know by heart because it's so short. And it's a proverb. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. But wine itself has never mocked anyone. The Lord Jesus drank it and it didn't mock him. Abraham drank it and it didn't mock him. Moses commended it and he wasn't trying to mock the nation. It's the abuse of it that causes the mocking of a man. How about Proverbs 23, 31? Look not thou upon the wine when it is red. That's been quoted, printed, published so many times without looking at the context of those words. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red. For someone who wants to take those words literally without an explanation from the context, what about this? Does that mean it's okay for me to look and drink white wine? Let's be fair with the word of God. Proverbs 23, 31. Let's remember, again, it's a proverb and it needs some interpretation. If we look at the context of Proverbs 23, 31, we will find in verse 29 that the context is drunkenness. That's where it says, Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babblings? Who hath soreness? Who hath redness of eyes? That's not a moderate drinker. 
That's not someone who has used alcohol or wine for the purpose God gave it. That's someone who, according to verse 30, is tarrying long at the wine. Those that tarry long at the wine in verse 30 are the ones that have that problem. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35 is a lengthy passage condemning drunkenness and tarrying long at the wine to an excess. They will end... You do that, you're going to end up with woe and sorrow and contentions and babblings and soreness and redness of eyes. And so the wise man's warning is, look not upon the wine when it is red, and he's speaking to drunkards, and look, look here, is metonymy for an evil desire. There's no sin when you walk down the aisle at Winn-Dixie and you happen to look over and see a bottle of Lambrusco, which is red. You haven't sinned when you've done that, but yet you've violated a literal use of those words. But you know better than that. There has to be a sense to these words. And it's people who tarry long at the wine, they are not to have an evil desire toward it. I'll give you some Bible examples. Job said in Job 31.1, about marriage, I've made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? We can understand that. We know that Job thought about lots of maids. He had maids. He paid them. He took care of them. He thought about lots of maids, but he never thought about a maid with an evil desire to having her. Why then should I think upon a maid? You understand that, Job 31.1. Jesus would say, Whosoever looketh on a woman, that's not the sin. It's whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Why did God create it for man? If you can't even look at it, what I'm pointing out is those words are to be understood in the context of drunkenness and that the look there by Solomon is for drunkards to get rid of their inordinate desire for it. This passage condemns the folly of drunkenness and Solomon does a masterful job by the inspiration of God as he describes a man sleeping on the top of a mast and a man waking up with wounds, not knowing how he received them and saying, I'm going to drink again today. That's a drunkard. That's what we might call in our society an alcoholic, although I hope you won't use the word much because it misses the problem. We'll get to that in a second. Proverbs 31, 4, It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine nor for princes strong drink. Again, this is a proverb. It's a short statement making a point. Are all men bound by kings? You can't take a verse that's addressed to kings and make it apply to all men, or you're trying to take the place of God and rewrite his book. This is a verse. It is not, O Lemuel, for kings. It is not for kings. This is a context of responsibility of kings. And the, what they are to avoid is perverted judgment by drunkenness. If you will go and read Proverbs 31.5, it's talking about forgetting the law and perverting judgment in cases of ruling where a king would rule. You know, if this verse were an absolute prohibition against any proper use of wine, why did Esther, a God-fearing woman, prepare a banquet of wine for her husband? Why did Melchizedek, a king, drink it with Abraham? Why would Solomon write in another place that in Ecclesiastes 10.17, that kings that drink wine for strength with a purpose, a positive, profitable purpose, when a king's drink for purpose, 
you're in a good nation. Ecclesiastes 10, 17. If you were to go back a verse to 31, 3, it would say, don't give your strength to women. Does that mean kings can't ever have wives? It says, O Lemuel, don't give your strength to women. Does that mean a king can't have a wife? Does that mean anyone else can't have a wife? Or is that referring to inordinate, unscriptural, excessive relationships with women, adulterous relationships with women, polygamous relationships with women? That's the warning. You don't throw out the women because of 31.3 saying, don't give your strength to women. You understand that in a context of abusing women, just like wine here abused will take away the judgment of a king. Kings must be more temperate than others, just as we saw about bishops and deacons in the New Testament. What about Daniel 1.8? Someone will say, but look at Daniel. We have a great example of Daniel in the Bible and how God blessed him because he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's wine. Let me point out about this statement about Daniel. It, he also purposed that he wouldn't defile himself with meat. I haven't met very many prohibitionists yet that don't eat meat. But Daniel denied himself both. This was action in his heart. There is no command that he was relying on. This was something he purposed in his heart. Did you know that Solomon wrote Proverbs in chapter 23 and verses 1 through 3? That when you sit before a ruler and he provides you dainty meat, he said, put a knife to your throat if you're a man that loves dainty meat, because he's about to seduce you with the good life of a king. Daniel was keeping the wisdom of Proverbs 23, 1 through 3. If he wasn't doing that, then he was avoiding meat that was offered to the king's idols. There was no other commandment that he was keeping. This was something he purposed in his heart that he wasn't going to defile himself with the king's meat. He may have been just doing it to prove to the king that God could bless him without the king's sustenance. It's any one of those three options, but there's no command in the Bible that Daniel was keeping. You know, should we, should we drink only water? That's what Daniel drank. If we're going to take Daniel 1 and use it as a passage of Scripture to condemn any use of wine, then we should drink only water and we should eat only beans because that's what Daniel ate. But if you'll read the book of Daniel, you'll find out that Daniel did drink wine later. Daniel 10.3 will tell you that after his period of probation was over with Nebuchadnezzar. What about Habakkuk 2.15? This is the most popular verse to condemn anyone who works around the stuff, drives a truck, works in a pantry that might sell it, works in a restaurant that uses it. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. Now, if we stop there, pull it out, polish it up, and put it on a billboard, it sounds pretty strong. But if we look at the verse, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that the neighbor, you have a purpose in mind, or those condemned by this verse have a purpose in mind, that puttest thy bottle to him and makest him drunken. Also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. This verse is condemning those who would use alcohol to break down the inhibitions of someone so that it would be more easy to get them to take off their clothes. Very plain verse, a very common evil in our society, and one that everyone should understand. This verse does not say you can't work at a pantry 
because they may happen to sell wine or strong drink. The evil here is making another drunk. The evil is to look upon another's nakedness. This doesn't have anything to do with wine with dinner or wine at a wedding like Jesus had. Melchizedek gave a neighbor wine. Melchizedek gave Abraham wine. Daniel gave everyone in Israel wine in 2 Samuel 6. Jesus created 130 gallons of it in John chapter 2. Someone will say, well, that's impossible. That's impossible. What if you had 2,000 guests at a decent wedding? Nothing's impossible. Who says they drank it all? They may have stored half of it for the next time. But he, he did turn water into a great amount of it. The Bible tells us how much over there in uh, Firkins. Romans 14, 21 says, It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Someone will jump on Romans 14, 21 and look at it and say, Well, there's a verse that says we ought not to offend anyone with wine, so we shouldn't drink. Let's just be honest with the verse and look at it in its context of Romans 14. It also says, eat flesh. Why, don't, why doesn't everyone jump up and scream equally about meat? And it says, drink wine, and it says, anything. The context in Romans 14 are things associated with idolatry and things associated with Moses' law. Remember over there it says, he that esteemeth the day esteems it to the Lord. And he that doesn't esteem the day, to the Lord he does not esteem the day. Some were still keeping some of Moses' day. And there was meat and wine around that had been sacrificed to idols, and some had a guilty conscience about partaking of anything that had been offered to an idol, so they wouldn't. There's no evidence of prohibitionists in Paul's day. This verse is not a verse about prohibitionists. It's about using things that Jews still wanted to keep some of Moses' practices. And Gentiles were warned... If your behavior is offending Jewish Christians, then change it. And Paul's saying here that if that's eating flesh, pork. You know, a Gentile convert would come along and have bacon for breakfast. But there'd be Jewish converts in the same church that would be highly offended with that. What's the Christian response? Give up your pork. There'd be some Gentile convert that had been used to worshiping an idol where drink offerings would be brought in and the, the product of a vintage would be offered and sacrificed to the idol and then taken home to eat, just like the Israelite sacrifices. And instead of using that, some Christians would, would, would not want to touch that because it was related to the idol. And if that were the case and they knew that a brother might stumble, they weren't to partake of it. But I want you to recognize that it's anything. You know, God has called us to love one another where if anything would cause someone... To stumble, that is to trip up in their profession of faith in Christ, or be offended, hurt by what we're doing, or made weak and tempted to sin, we ought to put it down no matter what it is, if they have a moral problem with it. Paul condemns meat here, so if we're to be consistent, we ought to condemn both. Many of you may know Seventh-day Adventists, you may know Seventh-day Adventists that are Total abstainers from meat. How many of you have become vegetarians not to offend them? Let's be consistent. Let's be consistent if you're going to use a verse like Romans 14, 21. We're going to look at Christian liberty here for just a moment. 
And that's, that's what that subject is called when we would change our behavior in order to avoid offending someone else's conscience. We've been over this verse, so we'll cover it very quickly. The Bible says a bishop then must not be given to wine. Ministers are to be examples to their flock. But Paul told Timothy to drink a little. Given describes addiction, inclination, or prone to. You know, the Bible says we're to be given to hospitality. You know, you should be addicted to hospitality. You should love hospitality. You should have a strong inclination to show yourself hospitable toward others. The Bible says there are some things you should be given to, and that's one of them, given to hospitality. Bishops were also told not to be given to filthy lucre or money. That's in Titus 1.7. Now, the, the Bible has the expression for both, not to be given to wine and not to be given to filthy lucre. Can, can bishops use money? Can bishops use, I mean, has anyone ever prohibited bishops from using money? No. But that use of money by a bishop had better be in a moderate and temperate way. Could Timothy use money moderately? Of course. Deacons were not to be given too much wine. Look at the different levels of temperance that I've already pointed out. But when you see a verse like 1 Timothy 3, not given to wine, let's define what given means. It means don't be addicted to it. And let's remember that the same words are used about money. If we're going to take that and teach total abstinence, then we have to take away money from all bishops. But if we understand it properly, it means that bishops should be disciplined, moderate, and temperate in their use of money, their pursuit, their inclination and ambition for it, and they should be disciplined in their use of wine and not have an ambition or a great desire for it. Some of you may think that I must have a real strong one. I can't stand this stuff. 35 years of being bred on milk and water, that stuff touches me, and it's strong and bites, and I can't stand it. Now, you're getting personal opinion, but you know what that's worth when it comes to, to moral issues? Nothing. The Word of God is what counts. I personally don't like it. I personally have no interest in cultivating a taste for it. There's plenty of other things that I enjoy. So when it says not given to wine, even though we're having to talk about it this evening, uh, it's no... Uh, hidden desire of mine or hidden habit of mine Phariseeism and wine let's look at a passage in Colossians chapter 2 now Jesus already dealt with the Pharisees in Mark 7 and Matthew 15 when he said what goes in can't defile you what goes in can't be sin because what goes in ends up in the belly and then ends up in the sewer Jesus was very plain about it it's what comes out of a man that defiles him sin is in the heart Sin is the choice to drink beyond prudence. Sin is the choice to drink beyond God's design and so end up in drunkenness, which God condemns. Now, Paul deals with the same heresy of thinking that it's things that go in that condemn a man in Colossians. He said, if you are dead with Christ, and I hope everyone here this evening is dead with Jesus Christ. If you're dead with Christ, from the rudiments of the world. And a short word for rudiments is rules. If you're dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Why do you put yourself back under rules? 
touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using. And did you know God in his wisdom couldn't have ordained words that better describe the crusading terminology that was used in this country in the 19-teens and the 1920s. Touch not, taste not, handle not, and if you use it, you're on your way to hell. I've read some books in the last couple of weeks refreshing myself on this subject. I mean things like the liquid devil, the devil in a bottle. And all, where in the Bible is that? That's falling right into this error. Touch not, taste not, handle not, and if you use it, you're going to perish. God, in his wisdom, knew that that was going to come from the Pharisees, and he warns against it. After the commandments and doctrines of men, these are the commandments and doctrines of men, touch not, taste not, handle not. And the warning is here, why are we going back under those kind of rules? These things, that is, these rules, which things, which rules about not touching, tasting, or handling, they have a show. God says that people who do that are putting on a show. I am not saying this. I am trying to bring every passage in the Bible to bear on the subject of wine. People who maintain a touch-not, taste-not, handle-not set of rules for their doctrine of Jesus Christ are making a show of wisdom in will worship. Look at how disciplined they are in humility. They're, will, they're willing to forego that pleasure and neglecting of the body. Did you know that Jesus Christ died for your body? You may look in a mirror and say, he didn't die for much. You may not think too highly of your body, but Jesus Christ died for your body and your soul and your spirit. He has redeemed all three, and we are still waiting the redemption of our body, Romans chapter 8. And he will come whether we are alive or dead and resurrect our bodies. Our bodies are something good. They are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And God has created things for our bodies to enjoy in this world and to satisfy those bodies. You know, there is a religious extreme called Phariseeism in the Old Testament, called monasticism, over the last 2,000 years where men go off and live in monasteries and deprive their bodies of the physical union of marriage and of very good food and of proper sleeping habits and so forth, thinking that gets a closer relationship with God. That is a show of wisdom in will worship, humility, and neglecting of the body. It's just a public show of those things, and it doesn't give honor to the satisfying of the flesh that God intended. God has given us things to use for the satisfying of our flesh. Jesus died for these bodies, and it's things that, the things that go in do not defile these bodies, were to use them in Jesus' name in moderation. It's the heart that abuses those things that's the sin. I hope you will not forget this passage right here. This is heresy to have a touch-not, taste-not, handle-not religion. Now, I'm a Baptist, but when I say that, and I, the, the church that I'm the pastor of is named the Greenville Church because we don't want the word Baptist in our name because the Bible doesn't require it. And when you use the word Baptist, too many people have an idea in their mind of doctrinal positions that we don't hold. We want to hold to the Word of God. I want to hold to Scripture. But most Baptists take a position, touch not, taste not, handle not. 
That is heresy. That is something Paul condemned. That's the doctrine of the Pharisees that Jesus had warned, beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees that Paul was still having to fight. You can find this again in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. I've basically gone through those points. God expects us to honor our bodies, and he has created things for them. That's Colossians 2.23. Mark 7 is one that we looked at earlier. Pharisees, and I'm not trying to be personally attacking this evening, but Jesus said we ought to be looking for the doctrine of the Pharisees. Pharisees bind man-made burdens on men. They say what goes in defiles you. They say, touch not, taste not, handle not. If you do it, you're perishing. That's a sin. That's sinful to touch that. These rules make God's worship vain, Jesus would say in Mark 7. These make God's word vain in the same place. We have no right to bind men by such rules. The Bible is the law that ought to govern the life of every Christian. These rules miss the real problem. The real problem is the human heart, not the booze industry. The problem is the human heart, not a glass of wine. The problem is the depraved nature of man, not the natural process of fermentation that God created. They deny God's gifts to men. They corrupt honest Bible study by trying to use Scripture to support their human tradition. You know, Phariseeism is very attractive. Do you know why? Because Phariseeism is very strict, and Phariseeism is very extreme, and Phariseeism is very conservative. And do you know how the human heart reasons? It reasons two ways. Either it says, there is no God, I'm going to live for myself, or it says, I'm going to live so strict that I can please God. It goes to one of two extremes. And so the more conservative, the more exciting it is. That's got to be the truth because it's more conservative. Jesus Christ wasn't that way. Do you know why the Pharisees hated him? He wasn't as conservative as they were. They were too conservative. They were conservative beyond the word of God, which is heresy as dangerous, but more deceptive than libertines who have no regard for it. And it gets more Christians. What is Christian liberty? Christian liberty, Christian liberty means Christians have liberty where God has not spoken. God has not told you whether to drive a General Motors product or a Chrysler product. Do you know what that means? It's Christian liberty. You can drive whatever you want, unless you've got a conscience problem with one of those. God has condemned drunkenness plainly. God has warned of wine's deceitful effect over there in Proverbs 21, if not used carefully. But God has created for man's pleasure. These are things that the Bible tells us about wine. Drunkenness is wrong. Wine, abused, can be deceiving. God created for man's pleasure. Christians are to use it moderately. Putting all that in together that we've looked at this evening, the Bible leaves Christians with the opportunity or the allowance or the liberty of using wine moderately. They cannot get drunk, and they cannot impose rules on others to say that wine is wrong. Liberty cannot provide temptation. If you've got a problem with it, you've been an alcoholic or a drunkard in the past, 
You shouldn't drink it. The Bible says make no provision for the flesh. You shouldn't drink it. That would be Romans 13, 14. Liberty does not provide for temptation. Liberty can't be your master. If you can't put it down, then you are with something you've got to give up. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things may be lawful, but I will not be brought into the power of any. Liberty cannot cause arrogance. No one who understands this should ever be arrogant, cocky, haughty about it. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Liberty should be used confidently. The Bible says if you doubt about something, you're damned if you eat it. If you doubt about alcohol, then you shouldn't touch it. If you've got a conscience problem with it, you shouldn't touch it. Because to go against your conscience is sin. I don't care what it is. Now, if reading the Word of God and by His Holy Spirit, you come to a better understanding on some subject, then you can change your behavior and not sin. But if you've got doubts about it, serious misgivings that you might be displeasing God, you shouldn't touch it. That's Romans 14, 23. These are the rules of Christian liberty. Christian liberty should be kept private. You shouldn't go around boasting about your liberty. The Bible says, Hast thou faith in some matter? Keep it to, thy, keep it to thyself. Romans 14 and verse 22. Christian liberty is that Christians have liberty where God has not spoken. Liberty considers the consciences of sincere persons. Over and over again, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul exhorts us to always be on the lookout for the consciences of others. If someone's conscience is going to be offended, we should avoid anything, not just wine, but meat, or anything that might cause, offend someone, a game. The television programming we watch, if they're in our home, whatever we feel that we have a liberty to do before God should be governed by the consciences of others. Liberty does not consider stubborn Pharisees. Do you know what? In Matthew 15, which is Jesus Christ's lengthy statement about what goes in doesn't defile a man, it's what comes out that defiles a man, Jesus said that to the Pharisees. They were highly offended with it. And the disciples came to him right immediately after that and said, the disciples were offended with what you said. He said, they be blind leaders of the blind. Let them alone and they'll both fall into the ditch. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. When you meet a stubborn Pharisee that wants to hold to the heresy of touch not, taste not, handle not, and is not sincere about submitting themselves to the word of God, and allowing the liberty of conscience that Jesus Christ did, they are not to be worried about. But someone who fears God and loves his word, and has a sincere spirit toward knowing the truth, but still has a true conscience problem with something, they are to be loved and provided for by us modifying our behavior. Many, many passages here, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, are very extensive about us considering the consciences of, severe, of, of sincere persons. Liberty may not be expedient. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. Sometimes it's not expedient or prudent or proper to use the things that are lawful, like wine. Liberty allows moderate drinking, and liberty allows abstinence. Do you understand that? Liberty, I have not said tonight that God commands us to drink wine or strong drink. I have said God commends wine and strong drink. 
Liberty allows both moderation and abstinence. Liberty does not condemn either position. Liberty does condemn heresies like making man-made rules that wine is wrong and you cannot touch it without sinning. The Bible does condemn that, and liberty does not allow that. Liberty may practice abstinence. You know, there's a whole chapter in the Bible, Jeremiah 35, dedicated to a man named Jonadab, the father of the Rechabites. That man purposed that him, his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, none of them would drink wine. Nor would they have it hold a permanent job, nor would they build a permanent dwelling place. He did it in a covenant relationship with God, an oath to God, to make a visible picture to Israel of what was going to happen to the nation of Israel for their wickedness. The whole chapter is about a man who purposed, I'm never going to touch it for this purpose before God. And God came back about four generations later through Jeremiah and commended that family and blessed them perpetually for their faithfulness to their great-grandfather's commandment. Now, the Bible has a case like that. But that's not a moral thing binding on everyone else. That's an example of him using his liberty to not partake. Liberty does reveal strength and weakness. I'm sure you've read over there in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 that Paul referred, if a weak man can't eat meat, then you shouldn't eat meat. Liberty does show that some people are stronger in their knowledge of God and his doctrine than others, and others are weak. Liberty is a great blessing of Christ's gospel. What is temperance? We've basically mentioned that so far this evening. The, the Oxford English Dictionary defines temperance as restraining oneself. It's self-restraint. It's moderation. These are their words, not mine. It's moderation in the use of anything. Bible temperance is Christian self-discipline. Immoderate abstinence, touch not, taste not, handle not, the teetotaling position, that's not temperance. That's a misuse of the word. Athletes are temperate in all things. That means they're very disciplined, very governed, very moderate in their use of anything. Now, we've got three equations here, and you need to draw a line right through that one because temperance does not equal abstinence. Temperance equals self-discipline, and it equals moderation. Bible temperance is self-discipline. Paul said he was temperate in all things, like an athlete, and so should we be in our lives. What about alcoholism? The Bible doesn't know the term alcoholism. The Bible knows drunkenness, the Bible knows abstinence, and the Bible knows temperance. Alcoholism is not abstinence, and it's not temperance, and it's usually drunkenness. And a person that is called today an alcoholic that doesn't get drunk, he's under the power of it, which puts him in violation of 1 Corinthians 6.12, which said, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. 1 Corinthians 6.12. Alcoholism is a sin. It is not a sickness. You know, today it's taught that it's a sickness. That's because we're watering down everything in our society. Sodomy is no longer called sodomy. Sodomy is called homosexuality. The Bible doesn't call it homosexuality like it's just another brand or preference in sexuality. It's a gross sin called sodomy. Alcoholism is a sin because alcoholism comes from the heart. Alcoholism is a function of the will. Alcohol has never forced itself down anyone's throat. Someone will say, yes, but it has addicting properties. Many of the things we do have addicting properties. The use of our tongue 
is an addicting pro property by the nature of the habit that we may be in that we need to correct. An illicit relationship with someone else may be an addicting thing that you're in that's very difficult to give up. A thief may have trouble giving up his stealing. Habits are hard to break. Traditions hard to break. All of those things are difficult. Every sin, all repentance is difficult. There is no such thing as easy repentance. And alcoholism is a sin, and the cure for it is repentance. Before God, that God condemns such dependency on wine, strong drink, or alcohol. Alcohol only overcomes the willing or the deceived. A person that has an alcohol problem ought to be pointed out from the Word of God that God condemns their drunkenness and the power that that has over them. They ought to be called upon to repent and leave it based on the authority of Scripture. And trying to deal with it as a sickness with the methods of today is missing the root problem. It doesn't matter a bit if there's results from AA or other programs like that. Because Satan has always been an angel of light and a minister of righteousness, and he can always produce good results. Listen, there are denominations out there today that have great results in certain aspects of their particular denomination or sect or cult. But that doesn't make them right. We need to measure things by Scripture, and when we look into the Bible, there is not one statement made about people being overtaken against their will by alcohol. An alcoholic is someone who has purposed in his heart he's going to continue to drink. And when he purposes in his heart he's not going to drink any longer, and he repents before God, he's cured. Simplistic, scriptural. There's just not enough preaching about sin and repentance done in our nation anymore. We want to call sins and vices sicknesses to try to excuse them a little bit. Here's the conclusion to our evening. God has not commanded us, he has not commanded us to drink or abstain. This is what the Bible teaches by considering everything that we've looked at together. He has not commanded us to drink or to abstain. He did create wine for man's pleasure when it's used to the purpose for which he created it, just like if we use oil or wine to the purpose for which it was created. God has created strong drink for man's pleasure. Like all creations, they are not to be abused. You know, the Bible says over there in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, the last verse, the Lord hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Men have taken the good things that God created and perverted them. And that's the sin, and that's the abuse. We cannot condemn drinking wine from Scripture. This is the bottom line, not an extreme position, a moderate position based on Scripture. We cannot condemn drinking wine from Scripture. We can commend drinking wine from Scripture because there are Bibles that commend its use in a proper way. We cannot impose man-made rules on others. That is falling into the condemnation of Colossians 2 about touch not, taste not, handle not rules. Scripture is God's mind of wisdom and liberty. Great abuse of Scripture has occurred on this subject. We've looked at the Bible from every angle that we can to see what it condemns, what it allows, and the warnings that it gives.
we should submit ourselves to Scripture. That means the only rules we should have should be those that Scripture teaches. The only rules we should put upon other men are the rules of Scripture. And relative to our conscience, our practice should be based upon your conscience. If your conscience is that you consider it too dangerous of a thing for you, you shouldn't use it. If your conscience is that you know of consciences around you that would be offended by your use of it, that would know of it, or you're in the presence of someone, you shouldn't use it. This is the Bible position, looking at the scriptures and trying to search them and look at everything they have to say and make it fit together. God created a good thing. Men have abused it, just like most everything else in the creation that God made.